welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley. And today we have with us Donna Hill, author of I Am Aya. Donna is a well-known and highly regarded writer as an early pioneer of romance novels featuring black protagonists. She has more than 100 published titles to her credit, which just blows me away, and has been featured in Essence, The Daily News, USA Today, Today's Black Woman, and Black Enterprise, among many others. She's the recipient of the Zora Neale Hurston Literary Award, the RT Career Achievement Award, the Gold Pen Award, and the Trailblazer Award. And I Am Aya explores issues of black identity and coming to terms with the atrocities of the past. So, yes, there's romance, but it's way more than that. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Donna. Thank you for having me. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. So where are you Where are you calling us from today? I'm actually in Brooklyn, New York. Okay. And yeah. your book is set in New York, but not all in the city. <laughs> yeah, um, it's set in Sag Harbor, New York, um, which is um, along the Long Island Sound. Um, So that's where the majority of the story takes place um, in Sag Harbor. Okay. So tell us a little bit about kind of the background of this book and how you came to write this particular book. Um, Well, you know, I, I started off wanting to um, I I just came off of because I I teach so I'm sort of jumping around. Um, <laughs> but um, one of the projects that we had was this um, oral history project that we did with our students, um, and we used um, Isabel Wilkerson's novel. Well, not novel, but Isabel Wilkerson's book, "The Warmth of Other Suns," um, which tracked the Great Migration. Um, and so I became more fascinated with the whole idea of history and legacy. And I knew that I wanted to um, do something um, historical in a way, but still contemporary. Um, my lap, The novel before this, Confessions in B-flat, um, was historical romance um, I, I, it's hard for me to just say that 1960 was historical, but um, <laughs> I, I feel you there, <laughs> you know, it's just like, what do you mean? It's just like historical, like really? <laughs> so, um, that was a historical and I wanted to follow it up with something, um, <laughs> that dealt with, uh, the past, but also dealt with this new interest that I had, which was legacy and family. And, um, my editor, um, I don't know how she didn't pull all her hair out going back and forth with, um, all of the things that I was trying to do with this book. Um, but one of the places that I have been fascinated with for a very long time was Sag Harbor. Um, I had, I have set several novels in Sag Harbor, um, and I visited it, you know, several years ago. Um, and have been enamored with the place. And as I was, you know, doing work on previous books, I was picking up bits and pieces of history of Sag Harbor and um, the uh, locations and, and, and areas in Sag Harbor 
that were established by freed black slaves um, and those who had escaped and the indigenous people um, of America who were in these places in Sag Harbor. Um, and, you know, I was fascinated with these locations. Um, and so um, I knew that this next book that I was going to do was going to take place there. Um, and because of the the history of the locations and the people who lived there, um, it was perfect um, fodder for this novel. Um, and so I, I wanted to write a novel that looked at um, history, but also had a contemporary element to it in today's, you know, language. Um, and so it was a balancing act because I didn't want it to be historical fiction per se, but I wanted it to be this contemporary writer's um, understanding of the history of her family. Um, and so those were some of the um, the points that I wanted to be able to touch on. So how do you go about doing that? And so, of course, you know, the research comes in. Um, I had to decide when did I want the past to start and how was it going to run parallel to my contemporary character's life? Um, and so the novel opens in 1839 and um, it revolved around the transport of um, Africans from Mendelan to Sag Harbor um, and the historical La Amistad schooner that came aground um, just off the coast of uh, Sag Harbor. And so, so that's once a, I, that's actual historical yeah, record, part of the yeah. historical record. Um, now there was a movie made about Amistad, right? Oh yeah, Steven Spielberg made it. And mm -hmm. was it about this particular incident, or was it about a different incident? Well, <clears throat> the piece that um, that I pulled from is about the revolt on the ship. And um, the revolt was took place from the slaves. Someone had escaped um, and got free of their shackles and took over the ship. And they ordered the their captors to turn back to Africa. And so they were so far out into the ocean, the, the enslaved didn't really know where they were. And so, of course, you know, the captains of the ship were saying, you know, oh, yes, we're going to take you back. And um, they were going back and forth and back and forth, realizing that they were never getting back home um, until ultimately the um, the ship came aground. And that's when um, they were taken into captivity yet again, um, transferred to Connecticut, um, where they went on trial because they had to, it had to be determined that even though slavery, the transporting of slaves um, has, was supposed to have stopped, these passengers on this ship were considered property of the captains. And so they had to determine, you know, are you stealing their property um, by letting them go free? And so there was the trial and John Adams, you know, famously um, defended the, um, the enslaved. So much of that, that aspect of it, the, um, the capture, 
the transporting, um, La Amistad, the revolt, all of that is actually in the novel because my contemporary character's ancestors was on that ship right. in my my world. Right, right. <laughs> and so did La, did La Amistad actually run aground outside Sag Harbor or in Sag Harbor? Yeah, yeah okay. right outside. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And um, there was one of the main kind of elements is um, of your book is the as Aya um, was that she was able to get away and and not be captured again. Was there evidence that there actually was? one of the enslaved who were able, who was able to, who disappeared? Well, we don't know. That's why <laughs> this fiction. And that's why, <laughs> that's why I made that part up. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, according to, um, according to the manifest, there were 52 slaves that were, that finally made it uh, that far. I think it was 52. And so I upped the number to 53. Okay. And, you know, I said, you know, there were 53, you know, on board, but when they took a head count, there were only 52 okay. and I had a, and so that's where the fictionalized portion okay. of it comes okay. from. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Because the hero of La Amistad was a man. It was one of the enslaved, Sinke. Um, he was the one that caused the revolt. So my idea was, well, how did he get free? Um, and there's, there was a lot of folklore that, you know, he found a nail, a rusty nail and was able to break free of his shackles. And so me being a fiction writer, well, what if it was one of the female slaves that helped him escape? Yeah. yeah. Um, because in all of my research, the males were kept, um, chained and a lot of times the females were left unchained and that's how she was able to free him. So that's well, how I like your version. <laughs> yeah, <me too. laughs> You're listening to writer's voices. And our guest today is Donna Hill, author of I am I. So you mentioned that your previous book was also historical fiction. Have you been writing historical fiction for a while or are the, or did you segue into that from, from more contemporary romance? Um, yeah, it was just kind of like a segue. Um, the the book before I Am I, A Confessions in B-Flat, um, I knew that, you know, for a long time, I wanted to write this sort of quasi-Romeo and Juliet kind of story with a twist. And um, so instead of it being families that were against each other, it was ideologies. So one believed in one thing and the other believed in the other. So um, I, I and I knew that as a child of the 60s, um, so much of that was ingrained in who I was and, you know, the music and the times and the experiences. And so that's where I placed my characters at the height of the civil rights movement. Um, yeah. So, so what were the, what were the opposing, was it pro-civil rights and anti-civil rights or was, is it more nuanced oh, it than that? Is, um, um, the two characters, Jason and Anita, Jason was a follower of Martin Luther King and Anita was a follower of Malcolm X. Uh, and so I did that 
intentionally because you would think that, you know, the, the stronger activist would have been a, a man, but it was her. Um, and they meet um, on, a, on a bus coming back to New York um, the same day as the, um, the, the bombing of the, the four girls that were killed in the church in Birmingham. So there's a lot of real touchstone, touch, touchstone historical elements in that book as well. Um, there are, there's photographs, um, in the book. There are links to actual speeches that took place and all of that. But all of that is sort of like the backdrop to this relationship that's building, um, you know, throughout the novel. Um, how, how do they overcome, you know, their difficulties? So that book, um, is being made into a film by, um, Amblin Entertainment. Um, and if you, anybody knows who that is, you know who that is. And, um, Octavia, Octavia uh, Spencer is the executive producer. That so... must be really exciting for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> have you, know, have you met like Octavia? So... No, we've communicated via her people and our people and, you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, but, uh, they, they made the announcement in March of this year. Um, so, and it was, it was, it was sort of like something that we had to hold on to as a secret for almost two years. Um, finally, um, you know, and to have, you know, Steven Spielberg's company, um, do this book. And the fact that, um, uh, in the next book, you know, I talk about, you know, like one of his major projects without even knowing that this was happening at the time. So, wow. So, um, do you know who who's been cast yet, or is that still no to come? No, not yet. <laughs> Just you know, beat the writer strike, so the script got written. Ah, um, and the writer strike came, and so it's like you know, so it's like okay, so we'll see how long it's going to take um, for them to move forward, because of course everybody's in solidarity with you right. know the writer. Now, were you yeah, involved so- at all in writing the script? Because sometimes the author is, sometimes they're not. Usually they're not, but yeah, yeah. yeah usually they're not. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I wasn't, but um, the uh, the the team that was working on it, like I'm in constant contact with them, um, and she totally assured me that it is very true to the novel. Um, they were very pleased. They went through several rounds of, you know. Um, writers before they found the script that they actually, that they wanted to go with. So, so I'm confident, um, you know, I've been down this road before with a couple of my books were made into movies for TV and it was like, oh my God, what is this? (laughs) (laughs) So they didn't necessarily turn out the way you would have uh, wanted them to in in the past. But but there's a big difference between a movie made for TV and a movie with these names behind it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, in your bio, it says that you have more than 100 published titles to your credit. Are How did you get started as a writer and how, yeah, tell us a little bit about your story to to this level of success? Wow. Um, I started, I was always writing, even as, you know, a, a, 
adolescent teenager. Um, I got my first break, so to speak, writing confessions for the confession magazine. So I was writing short stories. <laughs> confession magazines, yes. Um, and they they even paid me. So I was like a paid writer. I just would, that was big time. I got like $50 a story or something, whatever it was. Um, and then um, my, uh, the editor at that, at the confession magazine, um, you know, she was telling me that my stories we're getting a little too long and a little too complicated, you know, for the magazine. And why didn't I think about, you know, writing a novel? So at that point, you know, I could not fathom how am I going to get from 15 pages to, you know, 200 <laughs> pages or whatever. It didn't seem possible. Um, and she was just really very, very supportive, Nathasia Brooks-Harris. And um, she took me to my very first writer's conference um, where I met with, um, you know, one of the major romance publishing houses, like in the world, um, who she said she liked the story, but essentially, um, she wanted to know if my characters had to be black characters. Um, and this was like, this was like 1989, um, so I was a little discouraged. I was like, um, yeah, I guess so. You know, that's what I'm writing about. But anyway, so um, went through a couple of hoops and whistles. And ultimately, I found um, a small publishing company, a small black publishing company in Silver Spring, Maryland, Odyssey Books. And I sent off my manuscript that was in progress at that time. Um, and lo and behold, they wanted to publish it. And so it was the first novel out of their company. So um, that novel, Rooms of the Heart, was my very first novel in 1990. Um, and I published another novel with them, Indiscretions. And then in about 1994, um, Kensington Publishing had just launched their Arabesque line, which was um, their African-American imprint romance imprint and I started writing for Kensington for several years um I did a bunch of books with them um you know I had a, a contact at St. Martin's and St. Martin's was looking for someone to do um some anthologies so I was able to get some anthologies done um all sorts of stuff was happening simultaneously um, so, uh, then Kensington, um, the line got bought by BET. Um, and so when BET took over, BET television, when they took over, they wanted to adapt a lot of the books into movies for TV. And that's how three of my books wound up on television. Um, and from there, they went to Harlequin. And so, full circle it was harlequin that told me at the beginning of my career they wanted to know if my characters had to be black and lo and behold that's where i wind up you know x amount of years later so you know i mean the i've been writing for a long time so that's that's the first thing and there there are writers i have you know um contemporaries who've written you know more books than i have um i don't know how they do that so but, uh, when you say when it says that you have a hundred published titles to your credit, those are all books, full books. They they are books. They are um, full length novellas. Okay. So they 
be part of larger anthology, a lot of, a lot of anthologies. So I did like tons of those as well. Okay. And I did tons of single title books and series and things like that. So I, I don't I, understand how anybody can write a hundred books. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can, if that's, if that's your job. You know, that's, I, so it's your job. You, you write yeah. every day. Nope. Nope. What, what's your Mm-mm. writing routine like? Oh, man, it's terrible for me to even say it out loud, especially <laughs> for inspiring writers. Um, because, you know, like I teach writing classes and, you know, we always say, you know, you should, you should really try to write every day, you know, get a routine and blah, 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 blah. And, um, I write, I probably do write every day, but I don't write books every day. Okay. I write other things. Like I may be taking notes. I may be, um, highlighting stuff and reading particular pieces, um, I may be sketching out ideas for um, a book or a short story or a proposal or something like that, or writing an article. And plus, you know, I'm an English professor, so I'm always I'm always writing, but I may not necessarily be working on my book every single day. Um, and okay. so my my writing routine. Uh, sort of revolves around how I feel, where I am. Um, I can write essentially anywhere. So, you know, I could be on the bus going downtown and I'll start writing. Uh, <laughs> what play, do you, you know, do you, you write know? on paper? I, I write on paper. I write on my iPhone. I write on a on my laptop. I write on my desktop. I write on my iPad. I write on my note. I write on my notebook. I write on index cards. So there's a whole, I, my, my writing is chaotic. So no one should follow what I do. As a writer. <laughs> this is what works for me. Right. Right. Um, and right. Another, another writer would have a completely different routine. You know, they have to get up in the morning, you know, 10 o'clock, they sit down at their desk and they write until lunchtime. They have lunch, they come back and they work until I've never been able to work like that because I was always a working mom. And so I was going to work every day, coming home and taking care of the kids and family, et cetera. You know, so I would have to write when I could. And I would write late at night or I would write, I wrote Rooms of the Heart, my very first novel, going back and forth on the subway every day. Wow. So I, I took a notebook. I wrote on my way to work. I would come home. I write on my way home. When I get home at night, I sit down at my Selectric typewriter. This is pre-computer. <laughs> I sit down at my Selectric typewriter and with carbon paper. Oh my gosh! Oh my. And white out. You know, these, these days they don't know nothing about that. They're like, what oh, you, you mean it about? didn't even have the built-in the 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 built-in thing where you could backspace and white out over it? You actually no, had to. Oh. So, oh um, okay. so I had that. So at <laughs> night, I would type my novel, and that's wow. that's how I wrote my you first novel. You must have an incredible ability to focus. Yeah, I mean, like I could tune you out, like that. <laughs> I start doing something else because I need me, me. When I was when I first started writing, you know, my kids were little. I had this noisy dog. And it was always stuff going on and I had to find a way to kind of like block things out 
so that I could work. I remember traveling on a train writing and this woman, and I was totally into my work. <laughs> and this woman said, it's amazing that you can write on the train. And I looked up at her, like if I was coming out of a trance and it's like, like, of course, like, what are you talking about? Just down and but, you know, it was just something that I've always been able to do. Like I'm right on the plane, you know, in the middle of a conference, whatever. Wow. Well, I guess that's how you get to write a hundred books by being able to write anywhere. But I, yeah. I've got to say, I, I admire you, but I don't think okay. I could emulate you. <laughs> You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Donna Hill, author of I Am Aya, The Way Home. There is a subtitle to it, too. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit more about the maroon communities, because this is not something I knew much, if anything, about um, before I read your book. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I actually heard about and discovered it through another colleague when I was doing um, a fellowship and that was what his research was about. And I was like, Maroons, what is that? Yeah. And essentially they are, they were escaped um, peoples who found sanctuary um, deep into the, like the marshlands and the wooded areas um, where they settled and essentially set up their own lifestyle that was separate and apart from the controlling forces, right? So there were these very insular communities um, that were totally self-sufficient. Um, the majority of them were um, in the Caribbean, um, but there were f a few that were in the Northeast. And so um, part of uh, what I talk a, a little bit about, touch, touch on in the novel, is the, the, the maroon community in Sag Harbor, um, that little unknown community where um, Alexandra, my contemporary character's ancestors, began their lives. And so I thought that was sort of like an, a nice um, historical reference. And um, and there was actually a maroon community there. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And what happened to it? Well, you know, it becomes absorbed like everything else. Yeah. Um, and you know, you eventually, you know, move out into into the world and and buildings. You know, I don't want to say contracting back then, but um, you know land taken over um and um you know they start building houses and you know the the small shacks turn into something else and you know just like you know everything else um it just gets absorbed yeah now alessandra's ancestors left uh sag harbor um and moved to chicago and mm -hmm. um were had to flee from Chicago because of the great Chicago fire. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and that, that's true. The great Chicago fire. Yeah. And was that, did that impact the, the, the black community in Chicago more than, you know, was it primarily in the black communities or was it throughout Chicago? I don't really know that much about that fire. 
No. Well, the Great Chicago Fire um, allegedly was started by Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Right. (laughs) Knocked over, you know, the lantern and set the barn on fire. Um, And so it did not necessarily just impact the Black community. It impacted the Chicago community. Yeah. um, Because the fire just like took off and, um, you know, so much devastation. It just so happened that I put my characters there. Yeah. Um, and so they had to, they had to escape. Um, and so they ultimately winds up in Tulsa. Um, and we learn then about Wall, Black Wall Street. We learn about, you know, the, the economic fluidity of this community. Um, and so we see, um, you know, we see that, um, and, and the trials and the struggles, um, in that era as well. And so this is all part of Alexandra's legacy, you know, the family. You know, I just um, saw on Twitter yesterday, I think, about the Oklahoma education of somebody in Oklahoma, some okay. person who's said, they thought that the Tulsa massacre should be taught in the schools, but that they shouldn't teach that it was racial. <laughs> well, how did it happen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We'll teach you everything. But we're going to leave that part out. We're going to leave that part out because we don't want you to feel guilty. I. That's just like unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it's interesting how little... That has been taught in general in schools. Um, I didn't really, I don't think I knew much of anything about that until that sh- TV show recently, like a few years back, that the opening scene was, was in Oh, the- what, Regina King was in it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. they had the whole can't think of the name of it either. I yeah, know, they had that. I know. Yeah. And then, mm-hmm. and it was like, oh, wow, this, how did I not know this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and it's not just, it's not just you. I mean, it just was, it was, it was such a atrocity of what transpired yeah. that it was sort of like, well, we need to keep this under wraps because even so many of the, you know, the African-Americans that live in Tulsa did not know of the history, um, you know, of Tulsa and what had happened. Um, the, the, the burial grounds that are there um, in Tulsa for all of the people who were killed. Um, and so now it's, you know, they have, you know, the, the historical society and they're trying to, um, you know, get that information out. Um, but it's just so funny what you should say that, oh, yeah, we should teach it in school, but uh, we're going to leave out the part about how. Oh, how I don't say that. <laughs> not you. Yeah, not yeah. you. But, yeah. You know. yeah, really. Yeah. Wow. How, how, how did that, how did it happen then? Yeah. How did they explain it? Uh, who knows? Who knows? It's just, it's idiotic. Yeah, 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 very sad. Yeah, for yes, sure. And I think that it was, uh, you know, so what I one of the intentions in writing I am Aya was to um, center certain historical events around 
um, her aunt's, my contemporary character's ancestor, sisters. And where did I want to place them? Um, what did I want to show? Um, how old did they need to be? Um, so all of these things sort of played into the planning and the laying out of the story. Um, and how her discovery of each of these things, how, how it's going to impact her as well. Because, you know, as, as, as you know, as you're reading, the two things are happening simultaneously. Um, so you have this backstory. Um, right. The reader sometimes knows before Alessandra knows, um, but she's making this discovery. And these discoveries unfold these pieces of history. Um, and, and how her family was impacted by it. Now, the discoveries occur in two ways. One is from um, her vi- dreams and visions, and the other is from historical documents that she finds that, her, that have come passed down through her family. Are there... Are there actual documents like that? Do do some families have that, do you think? I would have thought that through all of this, it would have been very hard to retain those kind of um, historical records. Um, do you think well, there, I mean, there, there, are there are some? There are all kinds of uh, historical records because there are even slave narratives, um, stories That's that true. have been told. Yeah, yeah. Um, when they uncover... Um, uh, you know, old, you know, old buildings and things like that. They find journals from, you know, Susie from, you know, 1865. So there are those types of things. Do most families keep them? Um, the majority of families probably do not. Um, and so that was like one of the points that I wanted to make in the novel as well how important it is for us to retain um, our history, our legacy. You know, I had this conversation not too long ago, um, like how far back can the average person go with their family? You know, you might know your great grandmother or grandfather, um, but can you go beyond that? How many, how many can go beyond that? Um, And have you kept anything? You know, do you have the sepia photographs um, you know, what has the family actually kept? And so for this particular family to have found a way to hold on to pieces of themselves to be able to pass along um, was important to the centerpiece of the story. Um, and And each of the ancestors contributed to this legacy and it was all all about i mean at this at the center of it it's all about the survive survival right right Um, and how how what people do in order to survive to continue the legacy you know in some families the legacy is you know i'm gonna pass on you know my hundred million dollar inheritance Right. Um, And, you know, or, you know, they they leave their children the house, Um, you know, but this family left pieces of themselves, you know, the the jars, homes, the pieces of fabric, the journals, the letters, 
um, all of that allowed her to be able to see her family in a way that she was never able to see it before. Now, you do also, um, from the other side of the family, from her father's side, you know, he has left her the house and the, and, um, you know, some material things. And you, you are part of one of the messages that you're conveying or one of the themes of this book is how real estate and business ownership are crucial for economic well-being and, and how historically in, in our country, many, um, black people were prevented from, from having those. Um, and yet, despite all of that, her father was able to, to, to do that and to accumulate that wealth through those means. So that, that's one of the kind of the side themes that you're addressing. And another one is, um, issue of maternal health, black maternal health. Yes. Yeah. So is that, um, something that is an important thing for you to, uh, to get that message out? Yeah. And I don't, you know, it's funny when I wrote it, I don't know that it was consciously intentional. Mm. Um, I, I did it initially for more practical reasons and it was where I needed them to be and how old I needed them to be in order for me to get to where I needed to go. <laughs> yeah. And so looking back then, you know, birth control wasn't something you could go to your local pharmacy and get for the majority of, you know, the, the early part of the story. So, uh, you know, logic would dictate that these women would probably have, you know, four, five, six kids. Right. 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 That would be a lot of people that I would have to account for. <laughs> <laughs> And so um, the whole idea that it became difficult for them to either conceive or to hold on to children. And so they were having these miscarriages. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I realized as the pieces started coming together, it was like one ancestor's miscarriages, the next ancestors, but they had a child that survived. And so it ties back to this whole idea of survival and legacy and carrying on. Um, and, you know, the, the other side of that is this whole idea about, you know, health. Um, and it's, it's not sort of like, you know, in your face, but it's there. And it's sort of like, oh, yeah, that's probably an issue. Yeah, um, yeah. And so it's, it's, it's something to think about. It's a, it's a little subtle, I think, um, you know, because I, I didn't, there's not a conversation about it. It's just their pain of loss. Um, but nobody sits down and says, you know, black women have a difficult time, you know, with maternal health and things like that, but, you know, you can um, surmise it um, from what's going on. And then the struggles, the life that they lived, um, you know, yeah. So Donna, would you read a little bit from I Am Aya for us today? Okay, so let's see. My eyes are so bad, I'm going to have to read from my screen. Okay. okay. So, <laughs> um, all right, so what I'm going to read, um, I don't know how much time I have, but I'm going to read the opening. And the opening um, sort of sets up um, the novel. Um 
I wish to tell you a story, my story, the story of how I come to be here in this foreign land. Sometimes what I tell you will make no sense. Sometimes it will sound absurd. But in between those moments of doubt and dismissal, you may come to believe it possible that when within each of us lives the essence of our existence, beginnings, middles, and endings, the path that those before us took to bring us here. Some of you will close these pages, toss them aside, but there will be those of you who will embark on a journey of discovery word by word, image by image, memory by memory, from the beginning until now, with me and for you. I speak to you now through the voices and struggles of those who came before and after me so that you will know. My journey began here on the beaches of Mendelan. It was 1839. I was in my 15th year, happy, looking forward to my marriage to my beloved in six months time on my 16th birthday. Oh, how I loved him. I would make an excellent wife and mother I knew. My babu had taught me to hunt, to kill with my bare hands if no weapon was handy, to protect myself against man or beast. My mama taught me to cook, to mend, to keep house, to take care of my six sisters and brothers, to heal wounds with herbs, to honor my elders. None of that was to be, though. None of it. As you may have heard or read of the revolt of captive Africans on the ship La Amistad, you may have heard the enslaved man, Senge Pe, led the revolt, or you may know him as Joseph Senke. That is all true. But there is little more than folklore known about the young girl who helped him, who found the fabled loose nail that unlocked his shackles and those of the others. She was among the hundreds of Africans, along with Senke, captured on the shores of Mendelan. The first half of our torturous journey was aboard the ship Takora. Below deck, they separated the men and women in holes not big enough for a small child. For days, hours, weeks, unimaginable horrors of darkness, the roiling of the ship, stench, sickness, humiliation, torture, and madness rampaged through the infested hull. Disease and lack of food and clean water plagued the deadly journey. By the time of transfer to La Amistad in Cuba, they had reduced the enslaved numbers to little more than half. The crew had thrown 50 dead and diseased captives overboard. Those who survived were put on board La Amistad for the second half of our journey to Port Principe, Cuba. But within days, the revolt led by Senke ensued. The men forced the remaining crew to head back to Mendelan, to home. During the days, the crew seemed to head back to Africa, but at night, the devils turned the ship towards Cuba, back and forth, east, west, for two months until the Amistad grounded near a place named Montauk Point, Long Island. Safe, finally free, but the United States government took the ship. The captives were thrown in chains, taken to Connecticut and imprisoned, deemed property and therefore part of the ship's cargo. The ship's manifest read 53, but when my brothers and sisters were sent to the Connecticut prison to await the trial that would alter the course of slave trading, there were only 52. I had escaped. Say my name.
New York City, West Village, present day. I understand. I'll be there as soon as possible. Yes. Thank you. Alexandra Fleming squeezed her eyes shut and slowly placed her iPhone face down on the metalwork table in the studio. She dragged in a shaky breath and willed herself not to cry. Blinked. No, don't you dare. The time for crying was long gone. Wouldn't matter anyway. Her father didn't need her tears. She and her father, Jeremiah Fleming, Jerry to his friends, had a strained or, if she were being honest, non-existent relationship. They'd barely spoken in more than two years. The last place she wanted to be was back home. She flipped her phone on the, and checked the time. It was barely nine. She'd arrived at the studio two hours earlier to get a head start on her work, but so much for that. Alexander collected a heavy down coat and leather tote bag from the hook on the wall, then scanned the table that she covered with her photographs. Majestic images of border modern skitty cityscapes, dark caves, the aftermath of earthquakes and floods, weddings and births. She traveled extensively around the country into the Caribbean, photographing the best and the worst of mankind. Clearly, she had enough to mount her own show. The problem was finding the thread that held an idea or theme together. She was lacking cohesiveness, the thing that defined her as an artist, that gave her work meaning, her signature. She gave the images another look, sighed, turned off the lights, and hurried down the narrow gray hallway to the flight of stairs that led to the workrooms and the main level of the art gallery. Hey, Leslie, Alexander stopped at reception. Leslie had just arrived and was settling behind her desk. She slipped off her glasses and turned away from her computer screen, casting startling blue eyes on Alexandra. Hey, finished already? She asked. No, not exactly. Listen. I have to go home. Sure, Leslie frowned. See you tomorrow. No, I mean home, home. Back to Sag Harbor. Just letting the two words slip across her lips made her skin hot and her stomach churn. She cleared her throat. My father had an accident. Broke his hip. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. She reached out and briefly covered Alexandra's copper tone hand with her own. Thanks. Alexandra pressed her palms against the lips of the desk. I actually don't know how long I'll be out. Hopefully only a few days. I don't know. Do you want me to read more? <laughs> no, that's a good place to stop. That's a good place. To stop. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, you know, in this trove of documents that she finds when she goes home um, and the, uh, the man that she finds when she goes home is... Um, a cultural anthropologist is that how you would describe him yeah he's an well an ethnographer, ethnographer. so he's okay yeah so he studies communities so he knows what to do with these documents he knows how to preserve them how to handle them how did you learn all of that and um it makes me think okay i because i have i have my mother has and now i have um a lot of historical family documents from the 1800s and yeah and I don't we haven't done anything special to preserve them what do I need to do (laughs) um well when I was when I was researching um you know some of the things that I you know I found in terms of preservation 
um, is air is very damaging um, to old documents um, after a while. So that's why, you know, first it starts to turn yellow and then it gets hard and then it begins to crumble and fall mm-hmm. apart. Um, so to keep it, keep them um, dry um, and, you know, put them in, um, you know, uh, the acid paper um, to wrap things in and to put certain things in cases. Because if you go to museums, especially anything that's old, any artifacts, you'll always see them in cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's to help to, pres- to preserve them. Um, even some of the master's artwork that hangs, it has to be in a certain temperature um, in order to, not to be destroyed. Um, so there's all sorts of preservation, you know, methods that you can use depending on what the art, the item actually is. Um, you just have to be kind of really, really careful with paper because it, it'll just fall apart. Yeah. And a lot of off. it is paper. And we did put, my mom and I started going through them at one point and putting them in like plastic folders, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I got the kind that were supposed to help preserve it, but we never finished. Yeah. And so maybe I need to, to do some, yeah. you know, go back and do some more of that. There were a lot of um, letters from a soldier fighting for the North in the civil war. Um, wow, yeah. That's amazing. yeah. And this was from Iowa and, um, these they they weren't a direct ancestor they were the brother of a they were from the brother of a one of my ancestors and um they like he writes about this is this has always been just amazing to me he writes about being in missouri and um and trying to get and um as they're marching along um they try and get the African-Americans that they find to fall in with them and to come with them. Now, Missouri was, was not, was still a part of the South. So, um, and they did, they did get some to come with them, but when they got back to the camp, their captain wouldn't let them bring them in to the camp. And so they took up a collection among the, among the soldiers and gave them money and directions to go north. And wow, yeah, <laughs> and that's a, that's a story right there. I know, I know, and it's it's incredible. That's amazing. Yeah, and you know, sometimes you hear about people say that the Civil War wasn't really fought about slavery; it was fought about, you know, for economic reasons and states' rights and all this crap, and. um I can tell you from at least these letters, this soldier was there because of slavery. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. was why he was yes. fighting you that have, war. <laughs> that kind of documentation that so many of us wish we had. If, I mean, if you part of your part of your legacy, you can go back to the 1800s. That's yeah. like a, that's amazing, you know. I know. That's amazing. I know. Everybody's into the whole ancestry.com thing. <laughs> So, um, but to have physical documents, yeah, you know, one thing to be able, well, I can trace my roots back to, you know, wherever, you know, Scotland and this place and that place. But do you have physical documents? And see, you have that. That is amazing. I know it really is. And there's a lot of, I, I could tell you all kinds of stories and someday I should actually write do it something down. with this and write it down. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. 
So make sure that deserve. Donna, in the in the little time that we have left, um, tell me a little bit about your teaching. Oh, okay. Um, I'm an assistant professor at Mega Evers College in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I teach English composition, um, fiction writing, um, women's literature. Um, so those are, those are my main courses, you know, that I teach. Um, I've been at Mega Evers since 2013 um, and became full-time faculty in 2018. Now, I understand you've had some students that have published books. Um, I have had students from my writing classes, not from college, not from my college teach writing workshops. Um, So I've taught writing workshops over the years, and um, a couple of my students actually wound up publishing work. Now, I, I know that you began your teaching career writing as a writing instructor at the Frederick Douglas Creative Arts Center in New York. Is that something, is that a place that still exists? And um, I don't know. Um, I believe so. Um, it was up until like pre-COVID. Um, so I don't know. I have, I haven't been at the Frederick Douglas Center in a very, very long time. <laughs> so, but early the... Or anything, yeah. Okay, and you've also taught in an elders writing program. Yeah, that's actually that was actually part of um, Mega Evers College. One of the programs that they have um, is the Dr. Edith Edith Rock Memoir Writing Program for Elders. Um, and because I was a writer and I was at Mega Evers, the um, one of the founders of the, the the center asked if I could, you know, facilitate the workshop. So I took over um, from someone else, and so it was working with um, elders. So most of them were anywhere from seventy and up, and they were the wild, <laughs> which doesn't world. sound that old to me anymore. I got to tell you. <laughs> Um, wildest, raunchiest group of women that I've ever met. <laughs> you ladies are embarrassing me like every week. Um, but it was all about writing, um, getting them to write their memoirs, um, you know, different aspects of their memoirs. And so when I worked with them, they published their first anthology. Um, so we got that published. So, so they were happy about that. And it was like really so good because, and and probably just thinking about it now that you mentioned it, it, it probably planted the seed of history in me back then when I was doing this workshop with these women, um, you know, talking about their past and the impact that it had on them and where they grew up and, um, you know, the different things that happened. Um, so, and, it's, and the, the, the group still exists. Um, uh, Issa Richardson actually takes um, is taking care of it now. She's another writer. Um, they publish an anthology like every other year, so it's, it's it's going strong. We've lost some of our members, unfortunately, but new members have come on and they do readings. Um, you know, they come out and do readings, um, and it's all part of um, it's subsidized also by poets and writers. Wow. The organization, yeah. Well. One of my guests a couple of weeks ago, who's a historical fiction writer, um, said that part of why she writes historical fiction is because the history has been written by the victors, and it's usually um, white men who've written it. Right. And historical fiction is a way to 
get the voices of women and people of color back into the history. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to learn some of this stuff in school, but we can learn it by reading books like yours. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's, that's the hope. (laughs) Because, you know, another 10 years from now, there's no telling what um, our history is going to actually be anymore. Um, so it's, it's important for, you know, those of us who have the opportunity to have a voice and a platform to, um, to get that out there. You know? Absolutely. Well, we're yeah. about out of time. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank Donna. you. This is cool. Thank <laughs> yeah. you so much. I great. love the question about the elders. It really made me think, uh, wow, uh, that seed was planted and I didn't even know it. <laughs> That is great. We always end the show with the quote that was from my mother, um, who does the show with me part of the time. And, and we she always has a quote. So I always have to come up with one if she's not here. And this is from Michael Jackson. Love <laughs> is the human family's most precious legacy. It's richest bequest. It's golden inheritance. Oh, nice. I think that fits your book pretty well. Yes, perfect. <laughs> I've had that. In the opening, you know how they always have a quote from somebody. Yes, you know, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe on the next edition, you can use that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Donna. And Thank you. Have a wonderful day. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Take care.